Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am thrilled to welcome Professor Tema Milstein to the show today. Professor Milstein is an associate professor of environment and society at the University of New South Wales. And today we are discussing her new edited volume with Professor Jose Castro Sotomayor entitled Rutledge Handbook of Ecocultural Identity, which was published in 2020 with Rutledge. Professor Milstein, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And I I will add that it is a new book in that the paperback just came out in the last 30 days. So in 2022. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. What is eco-cultural identity? That is a very good first question for the Handbook of Eco-Cultural Identity. Um, And and I would say that identity is a starting point um, for all the ways that we know and act in the world. Um, and so we always talk about identities being social and cultural, right? But we very seldom talk about identities also always being ecological. And so ecocultural identity is a lens or a framework for rearticulating what identity is always. And, and so it's a, it's a way of understanding, okay, anytime there's an identity, it's social, it's cultural, and it's ecological. And so that means that ecocultural identity is not just, you know, good for the planet. It also could be very bad for the planet, whatever the ecocultural identity is. So it could be extremely destructive. It could be extremely regenerative. So all of these are ecocultural ways of being. Um, and so it's a way to sensitize ourselves to not just the structural problems, you know, the, the larger political and economic problems, but also the ways of being and the forms of meaning that undergird and inform and also reproduce these structures. Um, and so we could think of ecocultural identity, I mean, obviously I'm coming from the academic realm, but also it's part of the activist realm, it's part, part of the political realm. It's, um, it's, it's really a way of stepping out of this common sense humans as separate from nature approach to the world and always reintegrating because it always is integrated humans with the more than human in the ways we think and talk and question um, and understand. Um, So, so that's what it is. Um, So our, our conditions, our constitutions, our relations, um, as being ecological as well as sociocultural, and those two as being in conversation with one another. The book begins with an interview with David Abram, where he develops this, this concept of the humilicine. Could you maybe tell listeners a little bit, in case they don't know who David Abram is and what the humilicine is? Yes. So David Abram is a 
beautiful thinker and a beautiful writer. Um, he's a cultural ecologist and a geophilosopher. Um, and also a magician, um, also a, a friend. Um, he, um, so, so he, he coined the term more than human, more than human world, which I've already been using and a lot of people use in, um, across disciplines in scholarship, but also more and more in the everyday realm. Um, and that, so the more than human world is a way to step away from terms like the environment and, um, terms that often connote something that's separate from humans and something that's uh, kind of homogenous kind of blob, uh, right? That's separate from humans um, and to emplace the human once again in our planetary existence and our earthly existences. Um, so he and I had been talking for a little while about this term. He'd been starting to talk about this humilicine term and I got very excited about it. Um, and said, look, have you written anything about it? And he hadn't yet. And so I told him about this handbook I was putting together on eco-cultural identity. And we discussed it could be a really great way to step into um, talking about all of our orientations and selfhoods as always eco-cultural. So humilicine is a term that is responsive to Anthropocene, um, responsive in a critical way but also in a, here's a different way of thinking about things, not just critique, but also maybe step this way instead. Um, and of course, Anthropocene has some truth in it, right? That, that yes, our species is really shaping the planet in tremendous ways right now that are unprecedented from one species. Um, but also there's no ethic in Anthropocene, right? There's no, it's not directive, it's just like stamp, you know, humans are, it's the human epoch. Um, and of course there's been people, many people who've been coming forward with different terms for the Anthropocene, um, like the Capitalocene, for instance, or the Tulocene, if I'm saying that correctly, I'd have to ask Donna Haraway how she actually says it, um, but different terms that draw our attention to, you know, the, the actual, it's not just humans, it's actually a certain kind of political economic system that's having the stamp on the planet um, you know, capitalism, or it's it's a time to shift to a relational understanding of the world again. Um, but what he's doing, um, I found really interesting in that he was talking about, look, anthro, the Anthropocene is, a, is it's one way of, you know, it's, it's a root of what it is, what, hum, humanity, the anthro of anthropology. But there are other terms that one could use, including human, um, and human is from the same derivation of humus or soil, um, which we see in lots of different languages, you know, in Hebrew, uh, Adama and Adam, Adam, your name itself, right, which is literally of the, of the earth, it's, of, it's that land. Um, and um, and to, so to root, to literally ground ourselves in this epoch, um, to, to ground who we are in this epoch. And what I found especially useful about humilicine is that it is does have an ethic. It is directive in that humus and human also share the sounds. I'm not sure if they share the actual etymological roots of humility and humiliation, right? That it's actually time to enter a humbling moment as a species and to move forward 
with humility in terms of how we relate with one another and the more than human world. Um, and that it's also time to be a little humiliated by you know, what our species as a whole, even though we're a very diverse species with very diverse stories. Um, and of course there are those who are more at fault, <laughs> far more at fault for where we are right now um, in those industries. Um, it's a way for of, re, of orienting ourselves. So we start with this chapter as a as an interview with David Abram to kind of set the tone for going in multiple directions around the world uh, in different cultures and scenes um, to start to talk about well what are eco cultural identities today? How are they transforming? And what does that mean for where we are and where we're going? In your chapter, you start off with a story about a student saving earthworms on the pavement. Could you tell that story and what that story tells us about ecocultural identities? Yeah, it, it, so this was, um, I, this was in Seattle and I used to, uh, I, I did my PhD some time ago now um, at University of Washington um, and uh, I taught there at the same time and I was um, teaching an environment, society and culture course uh, and it was raining as it does in Seattle. And, um, and the student and I were just discussing, okay, we were about to walk home and you know, how, how do you walk home and all the rain. And, um, and we both brought up the worms because in that part of the country, when there's a heavy rain, after it stops raining, the worms come out of the cracks in the sidewalk and then shiny, their little shiny bodies are going across the sidewalk, the pavement panels. And, um, and it, you may not notice them. Um, it's also really difficult not to step on them, right? Because there could be, you know, each, each step you take, there could be, you know, three to 20 worms just sliding right across because they use, it's, it's thought that they use that, that the wetness at that moment to navigate across pretty far distances for a worm. Um, and so she, um, she was a, just as context, she was a, a firefighter. She was queer. Um, she, you know, fought against stereotypes and, and discrimination around gender and sexuality and, and, um, and her particular employment um, context very boldly uh, in an everyday way. Um, so that's context for who this person is. And, um, and she was saying, you know, I, it takes me forever to walk home on these days because every time I see a worm, I, I stop and I, I gently try to remove it from the pavement and I put it in the soil so it'll, so it'll be out of harm's way. And, you know, when someone walks by, I just pretend I'm tying my shoe. And it was that moment, that moment of pretend, that moment of masking her ecocentric identity, right? Her identity that was about caring for other species and especially the lowly worm. Um, that masking for, for, we kind of had this aha moment and looked at each other, right? Because it was, here she was fighting against these discriminations, you know, we, we think and talk about all the time in the socio cultural realm, right? And she was doing that, she was bold, she was brave, she was courageous, but the moment it moved into shifting out of an anthropocentric or a human-centered um, and human exceptional uh, orientation to the world into an ecocentric or interspecies, you know, caring relationship. That was something she still felt she had to 
guard, um, to protect from being seen as she felt vulnerable. Um, it seemed it was, it was wrong, right? It wasn't normal. Um, and so just like the humilicine, uh, uh, discussion with David Abram, this experience with my student was another one of those really salient moments of, oh, there's something really important going on here in terms of how we understand who we are as human beings, especially in industrialized settings, especially in westernized settings, um, colonized settings. Um, and there, in that way, um, we are reproducing this very distance, this very separate, this very superior or hierarchical orientation toward the rest of the living planet. And we do that, you know, as I said in the start, like we do that structurally, but we also do that interpersonally in our everyday ways of being. Speaking of interpersonally, you talk about boundary patrols on ecocultural identity in your chapter as well. And you talk about how people who work with orcas patrol each other's behavior. Could you maybe speak to that a little bit for listeners? Yeah, so, so one, of my, um, one of my study sites is, um, is tourism around um, whale watching, specifically around endangered orcas and uh, the US Pacific Northwest and Canadian Pacific Southwest. Um, and, uh, and so that's one of the places that, um, that I've done my own research around eco-cultural identity. Um, and, um, and maybe, maybe before I talk about what happens with orcas, maybe I could talk a little bit more about the, the pattern that, um, so I have a chapter in the book about the boundary patrol of eco-cultural identity, specifically keeping ourselves and others anthropocentric. And, and keeping us from straying into ecocentrism or moving or transforming, right? Into, or evolving into ecocentrism. Um, so, um, so maybe I'll talk a little bit about how I've seen that happen in, across sites, not just with whale watching, but then we can talk specifically about it with, with orcas. Um, so, um, so moving from my student and the worms, right? So um, from, from masking that aspect um, or and in a way she's self-disciplining, right? So she's, she's not um, in, in, the, in that moment, she's not allowing herself to be seen doing something different from the norm. And so one of the things I looked at is how do we do that to ourselves? And how do we do that to others specifically in industrializing westernized settings? And what I found is these repeating patterns of labeling, labeling ourselves like, oh, I'm a nature nut, you know, I'm crazy about animals or whatever it is, um, or labeling others, you know, greeny, environmentalist, whatever it is, you know, granola, crunchy, tree hugger, blah, blah, you know, we can go on and on. All these things that are ridiculed, that's also very dismissive, even of ourselves when we say it, um, or quali qualifying what we're saying through labeling. Um, and then also, also ridicule, like direct ridicule, whether it's kind of light humor, teasing, or, you know, just kind of like shutting people down. Um, and then also for, for the self, also self-silencing, you know, not sharing or like my student at hiding, right? So um, making these ecocentric ways of thinking and uh, behaving invisible to others. 
Um, and through that, of course, what that does is that reproduces the norm. It just keeps it intact. It doesn't challenge it, right? We keep on, we keep anthropocentrism or an anthropocentric ecocultural identity as the dominant one, right? Unquestioned, unchallenged, even by those of us who are used to challenging. Um, so I, th I think that shows that strength. So, so I was looking at that dynamic in various settings. And one of those settings that I thought was really interesting to look at that in was with whale watching um, and specifically around orcas, which I would say have kind of a universal appeal, right? And, and people are coming from all over the world. They're paying hundreds of dollars just for a ticket, you know, and they're, they're going on these trips to see orcas. Um, I wasn't just, I, I don't just study how um, visitors or tourists respond, but also how people in the industry, naturalists, you know, boat captains, also scientists, um, also politicians, also locals who live on the islands around where these orcas are, um, talk about and respond to being around these really magnificent animals. Um, you know, the only matriarchal animals, uh, mammals in the world that we know of, true matriarchs, um, and um, who have, uh, have people have responded to in various ways, in part due to the captivity of them, right? In part, um, uh, that's really crossed lines that were there before, um, even though captivity is really, really bad for orcas. Um, they've kind of served, the, those who have been captive have served an ambassador role. So anyway, when people are, are out there with wild orcas, um, it's, it can be quite amazing. Um, and there's a uh, and a lot of people will respond uh, like paraverbally. They won't, they, you know, they'll just kind of, it's just like emotional response, right? And, and, and if you're on a boat and you're near an orca, especially the first few times uh, people experience this, there's like a, you hear everyone kind of, it's not a scream, but it's like a deep emotional response. And one of the terms that's used to describe this um, by, by locals is the orcagasm. And so that's, that's one, that's one of those, it's cute, it's funny, but it's also a little bit of a ridicule, right? So the, that moment where um, people kind of lose their self-consciousness about expressing excitement and deep emotion about being with another creature, right? Kind of, it's a label. Okay, like, let's set that aside. Um, people who are really into orcas, um, who you know, who, who kind of dedicated their lives to them or, you know, who go out and watch them and um, regularly or write down ideas and are help, you know, helping bring together knowledge that's really important for their protection um, are called dorkas um, and also sometimes call themselves dorkas, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's cute, it's fun, but it also points to there's a boundary there that's been crossed, right? You've gone out of that human exceptionalism realm, you're maybe... You're, you're connecting maybe too much um, beyond. Or if uh, scientists, for instance, you know, there's, there's norms of scientific writing where you can't, um, I hope this is changing, but for a long time, it's been that you, if you're discussing another animal and you, know, you study these animals, you know them very well, you definitely know that they're sex, right? Um, but you would call them an it instead of a she or he, right, or them. So um, there's certain distancing aspects that happen every step of the way that um, even in these sites where people are seeking out um, an encounter with the more than human world uh, and they know it's gonna be found. They've 
they've put all this money and effort and energy into it. But even in those moments, there's, you know, people won't generally talk about their close feelings, whether they're spiritual, whether they're emotional, whether they're, you know, um, they feel deeply connected. That usually won't be spoken about in a, in a way that is in front of other people. So usually when people would talk about that with me as a researcher, it would be, well, I had to wait till my friend walked away because I know they, they'd make fun of me if I said this. So that's just one of those spots um, that I study that dynamic of boundary crossing or not, or, or, or reinforcing those boundaries. As you note in the book, and you just touched on scientists, which is also why I'm asking this question. As you note in the book, really, this book is a transdisciplinary project. Can you talk about why you think transdisciplinary work is so important? Yeah, wow. It is. I mean, I, my work is transdisciplinary. So I, I um, my PhD is in, in communication, but I'm working mostly with geographers, you know, human and cultural geographers. And I run a program that's a, you know, a, a graduate program or postgraduate program here in Australia where, um, you know, we're, it's a hundred percent transdisciplinary. Um, why is that important? I think it's important in whatever, likely whatever one could study, almost anything that anyone could study, but it's especially important when we're talking about environmental relationships, um, and environment society. So to understand that complex relationship, um, I think we need to think prismatically. Uh, we, we need to ask, questions and have conversations across any imagined or unimagined disciplinary lines. Um, that's how we're going to ask, I think, the questions that matter, but also have answer complex questions with complex answers. And I don't mean complicated questions or complicated answers. I mean, I mean, you know, complex in a really honest way. Um, and, uh, and I think that if we're going to accelerate our questioning and our answering and our, um, our further questioning and our transforming, um, we have to do that in conversation across all these wonderful tools and frameworks and ways of thinking that all these disciplines bring and to start to see these points of confluence. And so in this book, there's 40 authors who contribute chapters. Um, I can't even count, I don't remember, I don't know, a dozen, at least a dozen disciplines um, uh, are contributing to this. So it was a really interesting experience of just creating the book because it was working really closely with, I don't know most of the people who contributed, right? It was, I became to know them through working with them after, uh, after we selected their chapters um, after review and then got into the revision stage. It was interesting to work across each discipline and, and, and find how easy it was actually to have a common language and then to, to share certain reframings across like more than human world or um, moving away from using the environment or um, gendered terms, you know, man, man uh, like man-made or whatever it is, starting to, to also have those conversations, have me coming from an environment, culture, and communication standpoint, I was able to add some of that to what they were doing. And they were able to add a lot to what I was thinking, you know, coming from um, so many different disciplines. Um, so it's it's also just a pleasure. You know, you don't you don't get too microscopic, right? Or or kind of get caught up in um in arguments that are maybe going in one particular field that maybe could get in the way of um asking these deeper and I think more pressing questions, these bigger, bigger 
urgent questions. Could you touch on some of the social contexts in which eco-cultural identities play an important role? Yes, um, and I'm actually, for this, I'm going to take out the new paperback and I'm going to um, just just uh, look at the table contents just to get my own thinking flowing about this. So we look at lots and lots of different social and cultural contexts in different parts of the world. There's definitely an emphasis on Western and Westernized spaces. And in part, that's because I think that's where the most work needs to be done um, in terms of um, these are the spaces that have uh, the most, um, I think, culpability in terms of where we are right now. Um, and uh, and so why, you know, how did we get where we are? Like, wh what are these dominant discourses? What are these dominant ways of being that have brought us to this moment, right, of multiple crises, um, you know, that we're now realizing are internal and external all the time, right? We're not these little contained separate units, us species, us humans, um, but we're actually part of the ecosystem. We're, we're, we're always giving and taking and we're made up of so many other creatures, even just our individual bodies. So um, I, uh, I don't know how I got there, but I will, I'll get us back. So, um, so yeah, so go, starting kind of from a Western perspective, we, are looking from many Western sites, but also looking from non-Western sites. So um, for instance, um, in there's a, there's many North American sites, but also borderland. Um, so looking at, for instance, the US-Mexican border um, and seeing what's going on on both sides of that border and, and how eco-cultural identities are strained and how the Rio Grande um, actually embodies um, those shifts in eco-cultural identity, um, and then down into Mexico and looking at uh, campesinos or people who are kind of peasant farmers and their relationship with plants and the shifts in agriculture and the shifts in those relationships, um, but then also the pushback and re-embracing quote-unquote weeds and the power of those weeds and the power of them in growing food. Um, to, um, to looking at even at um, historical relationships back to um, Greek, kind of the, the height of Greece and, um, and, and the moment when uh, this, this one author, Laura Bridgman talks about animal autonomy was denied and how that's actually enshrined in the architecture, that classical architecture of starting to see horses um, go from companions to uh, putting uh, exerting power over those horses, which also at the time was a time of exerting power over women and the symbolism there. Um, looking at intersectional spaces, both within families and more broadly um, through race and gender, um, and then moving over um, into Asia, looking at human elephant cohabitation um, and the shifts there that are happening in those those spaces where England, uh, where, where sorry, where elephants and humans need to live and share the same, um, share the same uh, places, the same land, the same foods. Um, going into um, minority eco-cultural identities in the desert um, of the U.S. and um, relations with water and memory, and then going over into um, more right-wing uh, ranching relationships with um, 
environment and how um, those ecocultural identities are shifting too as even um, conservative political identities start to also take up renewable energies um, on their land and how that is shifting people and, and place. Um, including people like sportsmen, um, you know, people are hunters. And what does it mean when those identities shift or evangelical Christians um, and um, the creation care movement? So what happens when there are shifts within uh, spaces that have tended to be hierarchical and anthropocentric in terms of identity, but are now shifting into an egocentric realm? And how does that start to, um, how is that in tension with the religions themselves that are really related to that? Um, we also look at uh, relationships with indigenous identities, um, both affinity and appropriation when it comes to ecocultural identity. And we go all the way down to Antarctica um, and looking at specifically the, the imaginary of Antarctica and what that means for ecocultural identities, a place that most of us will never go, but that has, uh, but that does actually shape our identities and shape who we understand ourselves to be. We go to Africa, to Ghana, um, and look at illegal mining. Um, and identity and, and politics specifically around that. Um, we go up to Sweden and, um, and specifically um, the ways that farmers have often been considered heroes when it comes to them in terms of their approaches, but more recently have been considered climate villains. And so what does that mean for farming identities and, um, and what can come out of that? Um, we look at ways that, I, that identities are shifting, um, ways that the earth itself is shifting identities. Um, so for instance, in Oklahoma, when, where uh, fracking has caused earthquakes where there have never been earthquakes before, and not just caused them, but caused many, many, many every year, how that disruption is, is disrupting um, extractivist ecocultural identities and shifting them to activist uh, in a place where people didn't feel like they could be activists or that that is something they'd ever want to be associated with um, and, ha and have very close relationships with the fossil fuel industry. Um, how actually having yourself shaken, having your foundation shaken um, are starting to shift identities. And we could think of the same things when we think about COVID, right? And we think about the, the global pandemic that we're all still very much within and how that is actually disrupting our our, our ways of breathing, right? Our, our families, we're losing people. And so how does that start to shift the ways we understand who we are as a species and how we can behave? Um, we go to, to, to Ecuador and Colombia um, with indigenous communities and, um, and look at eco-cultural identities in those spaces. Um, we, we look at uh, India and um, activism around um, protecting sacred rivers. Um, and we go to Thailand and specifically with canal dwellers um, you know, in Bangkok, a watery city that has become less and less watery um, through urban planning and through quote unquote development um, and what's happening with scapegoating particular kinds of identities. And in this case, canal dwellers, um, scapegoating them for the problems that actually don't come from them. Um, we look at things like wild tending. So people who, uh, people probably heard some, a lot of some people have heard of the wild tender movement. 
um, who go around and actually, uh, especially in national forests in the United States where there's more freedom of movement um, and are tending wild foods um, and have a kind of community and the, that relationship with settler colonialism, but also environmental futures. Um, and then we also start to talk about um, how do we develop a grammar of eco-cultural identity? So Aaron Stibb, who's an eco-linguistic scholar in England, uh, talks about how do we look at positive you know, transformation? How do we look at positive, instead of critical discourse analysis, which many of us are familiar with, um, he's using a methodology that's been coming out in, in recent years and some very recent decades, positive discourse analysis. So taking power into account, but also how do we look for what actually is working? What actually is going in the direction of not just sustainable, but you know, regenerative um, and, and actually supporting um, regenerative futures. Um, in that vein, um, Carrie Freeman talks about um, reshifting the human eco-cultural identity as human animal earthlings. So seeing ourselves in relationship with lots of different species and how does that, how is that happening right now or not happening right now um, in movements around the world and in declarations of um, around the world. Um, and we also look at children um, and, and how do they learn through their early educations about their own eco-cultural identities or how do they not learn and how does that establish a sense of eco-resiliency. Um, and we also, where I live now, Australia, where I'm very happy to be living, um, we look at the forests of Tasmania where the green movement started. It was the, the place that the green movement started or Germany also, the, Tasmania and Australia are neck and neck with this, but, um, but uh, Australia and Germany, but, um, but apparently the Tasmanian Green Party started, I don't remember, like a few months before they were the German. So, um, so we go to Tasmania and we look specifically at um, the forests there um, that are being logged. And, um, and that's, been, that's one of the reasons that the Green Party started down there, or Greens, as we say here in Australia. Um, and what are people's identities, not just the Greens, but the non-Greens as well, in terms of understanding and uh, relating empathetically to the forest that is being cut down. Um, so that's just that's just a taster. There's more here as well, but um, but it's a bit of a tour through this this book. How many chapters? There's lots of chapters. Um, there are oof, 28 chapters, not counting lots of introductions and epilogues. Um, but um, yeah, and and it's a it's a journey. It was really fun putting together this book and thinking about well, what where did we definitely want to visit? We didn't visit all the places we wanted to. So there's I'm, one of our hopes is that. This will uh, this can be a framework, eco-cultural identity that people can take up and use in a very broad spectrum of research. Right? There's this can be done um, anytime you're looking at meaning, knowledge, um, practice, um, any kind. Anytime you're looking at human humans, really, um, it's a way of recentering the ecological and remembering that we're we're actually part of the ecosystem. And we're, in a, we're one of the you know many many important parts. So how do we how do we uh, center that awareness so that in every decision we make um, we are behaving ecologically responsibly? And one of the endorsements in the beginning of the book that really caught my eye was from Donna Haraway, 
who said, of course, that I am in complete solidarity with this book. Unsurprisingly. <laughs> yeah, that, was <laughs> that was really nice. Yeah, Arturo Escobar, Noel Castri, Donald Carbaugh, Robbie Cox, and many wonderful other scholars um, did some beautiful endorsements. And um, uh, yeah, we were really humbled and honored by that. And um, yeah, and, and, and through that also, um, you know, them coming from many different disciplines, hopefully that will also alert folks that this is a, you know, a toolbox that's here for them or um, that they can use and hopefully will be useful for whatever. I, I think so many people are asking these questions right now, right? I mean, I think that even if we're not asking them centrally in our own work, even if we're not asking centrally, what's the environmental, ecological, you know, nature aspect of what I'm studying, it's, we're thinking about it in our daily lives, right? Um, and so this is, this is basically a way into, okay, well, how can I integrate this? Even if my question, you know, my central research question is not specifically environmental, how can I bring in that lens to at least um, pay attention to it, right? To at least um, make sure I'm not ignoring it or silencing it. Um, and to make sure my research isn't part of the problem, right? But, but, is, but is always um, in communication and in not just this imaginary human sphere, but in the wider sphere as well that we're, that we're part of in shaping and being shaped by. Obviously, this book signifies a huge paradigm shift in the concept of identity. I was so excited to read it, and I am, of course, very excited to talk to you today. But I think I'm most excited to see the reverberations and the effects that this book is inevitably going to have in the future. I have one final question for you, which is a tradition on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Um, so as you can probably see just from this book, I like to do lots of different things and put them into conversation. So I'm doing many things. Um, I, I'll just touch on, touch on a few. Um, so one of the projects I'm working on um, with my colleague, John Carr, is we're looking at how, how is the ecological sphere of society invisible? Like how, how is it still invisible generally, right? So when it comes to um, our laws, um, our um, industry um, and and even um, just our our pleasure, like our recreation. Like, how is it that the ecological sphere has become invisible? How in and and again, I'm speaking specifically about these kind of dominant discourses coming out of industrialized and westernized spaces. Um, so we're looking at okay, well, where where do we produce invisibility? You know, where do we produce blindness? Um, so we're looking specifically at legal and industrial and kind of tourism discourses. Um, so we have a project around manatees, um, in, um, in the United States, which we're now expanding to dugongs in Australia, which is very closely related. Um, and in the United States, manatees, which have been threatened are threatened, um, to survive in the winter, a huge amount of them, I can't, I think it's the majority at this point, more than half, um, to survive in the winter, they have to go to the effluent channels of um, fossil fuel fired um, power plants and just hang out there. <laughs> so if you want to check this out, you can look at Tampa, um, the Teco um, power plant. Um, we've, we've published a couple articles on this. If you just 
Google my name and, and John Carr and manatees, you'll find them. Uh, one of them's called Keep Burning Coal or the Manatee Gets It. Um, but um, so we're looking specifically at um, these effluent channels are now actually protected federally and at the state level through endangered species protection laws. So how did we get to the point where very well-meaning activism and very well-meaning endangered species protection laws are protecting the effluent channel of a power plant instead of the actual habitat of the manatees that have been concreted over by uh, houses and buildings, right? Without any protection whatsoever. And also looking at how do tourists, people like you and me who would go to a manatee viewing center you know, with a giant towering power plant in front of us, how is it that on, only about 5% of those folks even mention the power plant at all in their reviews of the place, even though it's smelly, it's huge, it's literally all you see, um, <laughs> except for maybe some manatee bobbing around. And then what is said about, what is said in those? So we're looking for that, like Google reviews, um, that kind of thing. So that's an ongoing um, study that, as I said, we're expanding to Australia now for very, very different contexts, um, but also in urban settings. Um, and we're, we're just starting a book on that. Um, we don't have a publisher yet. We haven't approached anyone. So if anyone's interested, talk to us. Um, we, but we do have a couple articles out. Um, I'm working also on, um, in my field, environmental communication, um, the more than human voice. Um, where do we hear the more than human voice in environmental communication? So how do we also make sure that's heard in that realm? Um, working with a, couple, a, a few wonderful um, early career scholars on that, uh, a chapter for um, a book that's coming out. Um, I'm also working on a study on transforming public places through growing food. So um, community gardens, campus gardens, what that does to um, our common sense about these edu educational spaces and public spaces we share, and how does that actually start to change our eco-cultural identities um, just through um, starting to have different plants growing around us and engaging with, um, with place in a very different way. It's not this thing just to take a photo of and send to your alumni to raise money, but it actually is a place to have real connection and, um, and a place to um, have also responsibility um, beyond yourself. I'm also always interested in transformational eco-pedagogy and I'm, I'm working on a couple studies about that right now um, with colleagues um, around climate, around what happens when we move online um, and you know, by force through COVID. Um, and um, I'm, I've developed and, and I'm now applying to different realms, um, this uh, concept called the inside out classroom. Um, so unlike the flipped classroom, the inside out classroom is a space Yes, let's flip it. Let's read everything beforehand so we can engage together, but also let's turn it inside out. So actually grounding all learning into learners' um, inner passions and queries. You know, what are they bringing? What is their expertise? What are, their, what, are, what are they really deeply care about? Grounding the concepts that they're engaging with in the course through that, and then pulling their learning from helping them it, have that learning emerge from within and then apply those concepts and their passions and queries to spaces beyond the classroom, beyond the campus, so that there's application. They can practice being change agents through learning um, and they can engage far beyond the limits of a term or the limits of the class. 
Um, so that's the Inside Out Classroom. A, a few other things. Um, I'm uh, working on a, a study with a young scholar on um, young female environmental activists on Instagram and how they uh, establish their eco-cultural identities, specifically ecocentric identities. Uh, so everyone from Greta Thunberg to far lesser known folks, but from all around the world, looking at how they perform ecocentric identity and also role model it, um, produce it, and spread it. Um, so that's exciting, that's under review right now. Um, I'm also working on a study on perceptions of cities and nature. So, you know, so many of us live in cities right now. You and I are speaking from cities in Australia. We're at more than 89% of the population is living in cities. In the US, it's more than 83%. Um, so it's just, we're urbanizing, right? This is a thing that's happening. So what does that mean for our eco-cultural identities and relations? And so, also working with some wonderful scholars um, on that. Um, and then I'm, uh, I'm looking at, okay, so not just how do we create these boundaries and, and keep ourselves anthropocentric, but how do we become ecocentric, right? How do we em embrace that? How do we feel that courage? How do we encourage one another um, to embrace ecocentric identity now as a dominant identity, to hegemonically shift from being human exceptionalists to being human embeddedness, right? And, um, and responsibility and, and kind of a, not just regenerative, but a, a regenerosity culture, right? Where, you know, we thrive through giving to one another, not just among the humans, but uh, among all the eco ecosystem as a whole. Um, so I'm, I'm looking into that and I'm also, bringing that more into the public sphere through doing various talks. Um, so I'm gonna be part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas here in Sydney, Australia um, in a couple months, um, which is exciting. And then um, if people want to see um, some of the public talks I'm doing on this, they could on YouTube, um, they could look for my name, Tama Milstein and Nature Freaks. So um, talking about that. Um, yeah, working with uh, Extinction Rebellion here and there, doing some um, public talks for them when we could do that kind of thing. And I think we're about to do that kind of thing again. Um, lots, plus also being a mom and a partner and we just moved house and we live in this gorgeous place. So I wanna, I wanna not always work, even though I love what I do. <laughs> the book is the Rutledge Handbook of Ecocultural Identity, published in 2020 with Rutledge, and there's a new paperback version out in 2022. Uh, Professor Tema Milstein, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Adam. It was a pleasure. <laughs>